Like, if you want to fucking go and double your money, go and play fucking blackjack or baccarat. This is your chance to really go skits, and you've got an opportunity, so I'm riding this one hard with you. Welcome to a special midweek edition of The Drop. Stacey G and I are here to talk about the 2022 WSL Finals, which will potentially be taking place later this week. Um, Stacey, how are you doing? Mikey C, I'm doing well. Um, Nothing gets me more fired up than a midweek pod and a midweek title showdown. First day of the waiting period, only days away. And uh, as an Australian surf fan... I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited. All right. Well, let's just start off right away with when we think this thing might run. The forecast is actually really interesting and a little bit tricky. So on the 8th, which is the Thursday in the U.S., the first day of the waiting period, there's basically, it's, it's the dying side of a pretty decent swell that maxes out on Wednesday. So they're going to have some swell. It's just, you never know on that sort of falling side of a swell if it might get really inconsistent and lully, which already is, you know, pretty common at lowers. So they're contending with that. They're also contending with a little bit of northwest wind swell mix, which is good for the nearby beach breaks like Huntington and whatnot, but it's not good for lowers. Lowers really just likes a nice long, like 15, 16 second period with nothing else in the water. So then we move on to Friday and Friday is where it gets really interesting. That first swell is still continuing to die out. Meanwhile, another long period south swell is filling in. And on top of that, there's this tropical storm swell that's filling in. So the sort of underlying South Pacific swell is about 195 degrees south-southwest swell. The the tropical swell is actually south-southeast. So it's coming up from like under... Mexico, if that makes sense, and shooting like basically vertically, if not oververt, into the California coast. These swells typically are not great for lowers either. They're really good for a few spots nearby. But um, yeah, lowers like something that's a bit more south-southwest. So I have no idea what they're going to do because that the mix of swells on Friday is going to be really interesting. And then Saturday, that tropical storm gets even closer. The swell period gets shorter. And then after that, the swell sort of dies off and there's not too much toward the back end of the waiting period. So if you had to guess, Stacey, all this knowledge in hand, when do you think they're going to run? Well, we'll get the positives out of the way. I think the positives of the situation, last time I checked, which was a while ago because I was on the froth pretty hard, but I believe the low tides are in the afternoon. So that does help. A dying swell at Trestles with, a say, a high tide around finals time would be an absolute disaster on the Thursday. I just don't think they could pull the trigger in the morning if they didn't have full faith in that swell. But the fact it could be low in the Arvo, or low enough for that swell just to still be trickling in, might make sense enough to go. And I do feel like the theme of the last couple of years with the World Tour is if they see waves, they're going to run. Friday looks so interesting. I am not a wind expert in that part of the world. However... It looks howling offshore, which is so rare for trestles of an afternoon. Um, is that what you're seeing too? I mean, yeah, we haven't seen that since that one year back when I think Caroline Marks had her wild card that year. And I don't know why I remember CJ Hobgood rode a quad going right. These are just the odd surf memories that stick out in my mind. It's been years and years since we've seen an afternoon offshore sort of flow at lowers during an event. So that is completely uncommon. Um, We are coming into fall where it becomes a little bit more likely that you'll get offshore winds, but still, even those usually die out around mid-morning. So I think this is probably in direct relation to that tropical swell that's sort of mixing up the systems. And I don't know if it's going to hold true. Generally, these things don't really do that, but 
uh, it would be fascinating if that happened because that would completely change the playing field. Yeah, on that, if, if we get a, a light and variable wind, which it is in the morning, uh, here, say, on the Gold Coast, in that time of year, for us, it, it would stay true all day. It, it very, very unlikely would pick up, particularly if it was cold enough. It would stay just beautiful, you know, windless conditions all day. But, I mean, California just seems to... I, I just cannot picture an offshore wind at lower trestles. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, like I said, you know, coming into fall, you definitely get offshores in the morning a decent amount. And there are some days, they call them Santa Ana winds, where the desert just gets super, super hot and it actually holds against the sort of marine layer forces that generally turn the winds onshore. So it does happen, but it's not common at all. And um, like I said, like it could totally sort of skew the odds on who wins this thing if they happen to compete in conditions like that. I agree. I think uh, there's one name that comes to the top of my mind there who is going to benefit immensely, but uh, I think we'll rip into that a little bit later. Okay, cool. So basically what we're looking at again, Thursday, a little bit of a dying swell. Still could be fun. Like Stace said, the tides look good. They're very mellow tides. Like the high tide in the morning is, you know, it's a 4.8. That's a relatively high tide, but then it comes into a 1.4. So you're not going to get a super drained out low tide, which is really good. You don't want it to go too low at lowers. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, Friday, that tropical storm starts to fill in and that will totally mix things up. So it's a matter of whether they want to sort of take a swing on a, a potentially lully swell or go with a more mixed up ocean with sort of different angles and everything coming on. And then, you know, there is a chance, of course, that sometime later in the period they could find another day. But as of now, these are looking like the biggest days until the 16th, which is when it closes. Which is such a shame, really, because I don't think either of those days look like crazy world title winning days um that thursday i just hate to be a contest director on that day but we'll see how we go we'll see how we go okay so now of course we need to talk about who is in this event on the women's side we have in order of appearance we have stephanie gilmore brisa hennessy tatiana weston webb joanne defay and of course the defending champion two-time defending champion carissa moore and on the men's side, we have Kanoe Igarashi, Italo Ferreira, Ethan Ewing, Jack Robinson, and Felipe Toledo. So there's only one former world champion on the men's side, that being Italo. He's pretty far down in the draw, so he'd have to win a minimum of, I believe, five heats to take the title, which is a lot in a day to surf at lowers. Um, and then on the female side, obviously, we have Carissa with five world titles, Steph with seven. Um, how do you want to jump into this, Stacey? Do we just, you know, give our thoughts on the surfers one by one? Yeah, I think we could start start with the women and, and start from the, the, the bottom there with uh, young Steph. And, and like you mentioned, how many heats that surfer in fourth and fifth are going to have to uh, win to to get a title. I just think it becomes more of an Ironman competition rather than a surfing contest for that person, you know. On the QS, you can surf four heats in a day to win, um, but on the CT, it's so rare to surf more than three. And on the CT, you get a much bigger break in between, for example, a quarterfinal and your next semifinal. There's um, uh, about an hour and a half from when your heat ends until the next one. Excuse me, it's much more than that. It's about three and a half hours um, across two divisions. So... You know, this event's so much different in, in the fact you will surf, you'll come in, and you'll go straight back out again. And I just, I really struggle to see 
sort of anyone from from that far down um, having any legs left by the time the final comes around. Okay, so you're saying fourth and fifth on either men's and women's side are basically out of title contention. I think Italo's probably the only exception to that rule. He's got some Energizer Bunny stuff going on, a couple of Red Bulls, uh, and, uh, you know, he's probably the only one that sticks out to me, but, gee, he's got to get through some talent. Okay, so let's talk about Steph. She is actually, in this event, she's trying to become the winningest female in professional surfing. Getting an eighth title would put her above Lane Beachley for the all-time world title list. When we think about Steph, like obviously she does really well in waves like this. Generally speaking, most of her wins come on right point break. She won this year in El Salvador. That being said, last year she was in this event and she put up only 6.7 points in her round one heat. Obviously she lost that heat. This comes up to, I think, something that we've talked about with Steph a lot this year, which is just the quality of conditions and not necessarily the waves on offer, but just the surface conditions. Um, she actually talked about this a lot in her make, it, make or break episodes last year that, you know, these other women on tour are so strong and that doesn't seem like something that she's put a lot of effort into is like sort of, you know, weight training, um, just building her leg muscles up basically. And you can see it when we saw it at J Bay again this year where there gets a little bit of texture and especially if there's that little morning devil wind and she just sort of skips on the surface. Whereas normally you give her a clean face like at J Bay, it was so stark this year. The one afternoon before finals day, she had just the most perfect, beautiful J-Bay canvases and was just drawing lines, going anywhere she wanted on the wave. Next day, she goes out, there's a little bit of a ruffle on the surface, and she just looks like she's holding on. So that's something to watch out for with Steph. And then, yeah, like you said, it's just a matter of can she sustain surfing five or six heats against the other best women in the world and be reigned champion? I think if she did that, it would be like, okay, holy shit, like Steph really is the GOAT. Um, but a lot to be seen there. Yeah, I agree. I think the spectacle would be amazing. Imagine watching the person at fifth, you know, start in that first first uh, best of three battle against, you know, the, the number one seed. I think I think the number one seed would surely have to be concerned, you know, oh, this person's got a bit of a roll on. But, yeah, it's, um, definitely would want to see her surf a few more heats than last year. And I think, um, you know, hopefully the conditions sort of play into that. I know Steph likes to ride a lot of waves. So I think she'd probably be thinking the Friday would suit her a bit better. Um, it, it's going to be uh, tricky, though, with those. I think overnight, the wind on the Thursday is a little going to be textured in the morning. So could be the same case as last year. Okay, so then we come into Brisa Hennessy. She is the only new surfer in the Final Five this year. Uh, the other four women that are in there were all in the 2021 version. The only person who's fallen out is Sally Fitzgibbons, who actually missed the mid-year cut, but will be back on tour next year via a WSL wildcard. So Brisa is, obviously, she's having the best year of her entire career by a long shot. She won an event. Um, she just made another final in Tahiti. And yeah, what else can you say? Like, well done to Brisa. She's had an amazing year. That said, I just, she surfs for me, too similarly to two of the other surfers that are way deeper in the event and at like a lesser level you know what i mean she's sort of like a, a lower level carissa more basically is how i see it like just powerful great competitor strong but just not quite there and on top of that she has to surf five or six heats to win the thing for sure i mean it goes without saying most improved um across you know i think the men's and women's tour 
this year, it would have to be Breeze Hennessy. She's gone from kind of a surfer that's sort of double duties on the QS to the CT to trying to stay on, and now she's finished fourth in the world and going for a world title. So definitely a lot to be proud of there. Uh, and I think, you know, one thing that she's just absolutely mastered is that consistency. Not only did she have a first and a second this year in the regular season, but she has a host of semifinals. It was almost just like every event, Breeza Hennessy was getting third, which is such a hard thing to do. So she's definitely getting used to beating a lot of these top women. And I agree with you. She's she's looks stronger on the wave than Steph uh, in those ruffled kind of textured conditions. So, uh, you know, I definitely think she's uh, a, a decent chance against Steph, but like you said, as she gets a bit later in the draw, I'm not too sure um, you know, how she's going to look against, say, a, a Carissa. Yeah, and one of the other stats that I really looked into when I was sort of breaking down all these surfers is the number of excellent heat totals that they had this season. Because, you know, in a given season, in a given event, whatever, a few things can go your way, right? You can get a few heats that... Um, you know, maybe you don't have to surf your best to make it through the other person just doesn't get the waves or whatever. And you can make it through with some 12 point heat totals. And Brisa Hennessy does not have a single excellent heat total this season. And she's the only surfer in the final five that that is true about. So I do think that at the end of the day, like the best surfing prevails. And I think that it's really hard to come in and basically the judge is saying like, yeah, you're doing well enough to make it this far, but you're, you're not the top of the pack when it comes to just pure surfing on the wave. And I think that we will see that play a big role in who does well this year. That's an amazing point you bring up Mikey. And it's something that I know the surfers pay a lot of attention to. Um, it might fascinate you to know that you only need 11 points on the QS to qualify, uh, for the men's world tour on average through your whole season. But obviously it's the same with the women. Like you, you cannot carry those kind of numbers and expect to be winning a world title. So uh, that was a great deep dive there, brother. Yeah. For the record, uh, Steph has two excellent heat totals this year. And our next surfer, Tatiana Weston-Webb, has three. So as noted in a recent piece on stabmag.com, Tatiana Weston-Webb is looking to become the first goofy female world champion since Chelsea Georgeson in 2005, and also the first female Brazilian world champion. Um, anybody watching knows that she was one turn away from beating Carissa Moore for a world title last year, which is pretty wild, but true. And she is the only female with two event wins this season, or the only female in the top five with two event wins this season. So, um, Tati, how do you like her chances after coming out of that heartbreak last year? Well, they say you've got to lose one to win one, Mikey. And uh, I really like her chances. I think that she's so tenacious. Um, and she just has this will to win. She, it, it, You know, she just... I don't think that she obviously is on that same level on the wave face as a Carissa and Steph when they're at their best, but Tatiana is always getting to her top level, I'd say yeah, definitely more often than Steph. So it's, it's one of those things where moving into that final series, that's, that's the kind of shit that she almost, you know, they all want to be there, but Tatiana just seems to be the one that has this kind of obviously chip on her shoulder. Like last year would have been heartbreaking for her. And I really think she she's going to turn it around. So you think she's going to win? Is that what you're saying? I just think at, at that size, um, I reckon variety could come into play here. Uh, and with a nice groomed left, I think she could look really good. And, uh, you know, I learned a hard lesson last year. A lot of lefts were pretty good scoring waves. So I'm going to gonna throw a few chips on the uh, goofy footer, I think. Okay. I love to hear it. All right. Well, Tati, 
got Stace's vote. I love it. I I love like as a viewer, I would love nothing more than to see her go against Carissa again. Just there's so much storyline and drama there, and you just know how badly she would want it. Especially obviously, Carissa wants to win, but that's a whole other can of worms. So okay, before we jump to that, moving on to number two, Joanne DeFay. She has had a really really interesting year. I think she got quarterfinals in her first five events of the season or somewhere along those lines. She ended up with six fifths this year. No, you're right. She did. She had five fifths, which at the time was very daunting for her because obviously, as you know, they would drop one single result. And on adjusted ratings there, she was way closer to falling off two than what it probably looked like because she was dropping, you know, nearly 5,000 points off her total going into um, G-Land. So I think that if it wasn't for a few results going a couple of different ways, she was at real risk there of, of not even being on tour, let alone in the final five. So she's done a great job to kind of turn her year around because fifths on the women's tour, it, it's like it's like an ninth or 17th for the men it's really not that such a strong result so yeah she's done a, she's done a great job to kind of yeah kick that around and, and make a few finals and whatnot right yeah so she obviously she won in g-land she got a second and a third on top of that so she turned it around well i, I won't say turned it around because quarterfinals aren't bad results but she really made a strong push in the back half of the season and found herself now in second place um, so she was in the finals last year as well she beat steph in round one before going down Again, I see her surfing. It's uh, we've talked about how improved she is, like so good, so strong, but again, sort of a really similar style to Carissa and just not quite at the same level for me. So, if she doesn't get stopped by Tati, I think she'd have a hard time going toe to toe with Carissa for 3 rounds. We saw what happened in Brazil this year. Um Joanne was so close to winning that heat and then Carissa just did what champions do and she sort of stamped her authority when it mattered. And I think that we'd see that happen at lowers as well. Yeah, you're right. Um, I, I do think, though, Joanne has a very respectable record against Carissa. She, Carissa and her are pretty close, and it almost seems like that works in Joanne's favor. Um, I know Carissa doesn't have a lot of close friends on tour. Carissa's got eight wins to Joanne's four. I'd say that's not too bad. I don't think a lot of people would have that kind of record against Carissa. And Carissa and Tati... Uh, is 10 and 7 in Chris's favor. So Tati actually is the closest female besides Steph. Um, Carissa and Steph, they're 15 and 12 in Carissa's favor. So technically, Steph has the best percentage chance against Carissa, but obviously you take into account <laughs> what it takes to get there and the tiredness aspect, and, and those odds change a lot. But um, yeah, that's where the odds are between all those women. Yeah, I think that for Joanne, like in recent times, I, I know the stats would go against her, but she's had some big wins over her in finals. Um, you know, the wave pool comes to mind. I don't think you could get a more pressure-filled event uh, than the wave pool uh, comparing to, say, a world title. Just for the fact of you know you're going to get the wave, you've got to perform, it's all about execution. And Joanne... For, for Joanne to get Chris at the wave pool, to me, that's a she should be taking. You know, that's the kind of confidence she needs to take out of that win into an event like Trestles. All right, so Joanne obviously in it with a good shot. She's the she only has to surf one heat before getting to Carissa. So that brings us to our five-time world champ. Like I said before, she's going for her third title in a row, and that would make her one short of Stefan Lane if she were to win this year. 
I think it's pretty inevitable at this point, just given Carissa's age and trajectory, that she does end up the winningest female surfer, at least in this generation, um, for now of all time. Uh, it's just a matter of when. Whether she wins this year or not, I think she gets to eight or nine or whatever that number happens to be. So, um, yeah, we obviously saw her do it last year in pretty nail-biting fashion. She lost that first heat to Tati and then narrowly held on when Tati had a really good chance at the end. But um, yeah, so she is one in three in finals this season, which I know she um, like we've obviously talked about her as, you know, should be a favorite in pretty much every event. And she wasn't able to win one until Brazil, which was surprising. And I know that she's dealt with confidence issues in the past and a lot of these things sort of weigh on her a lot. I don't know how much this, you know, she only has a 25% win rate in finals this year. I don't know how much that would bother her. Um, it, It shouldn't from the outside looking in. But of course, people's inner thoughts can bring them down very interesting paths. So yeah, what do you think her headspace is going to be like going into this? Yeah, very much like Taddy, I'd, I'd have to think that Carissa's going to spend a lot of time having to manage those thoughts from last year and, and try and turn them into, um, you know, some sort of po- positive energy going into this because <sighs> Carissa, probably more than anyone, is so critical of her performances um, and that would be a major reason as to why she has five world titles but like you said you got to make sure that those critical thoughts don't send you off the edge and, and affect your performance um when it matters which you know she's proven time and time again that she she does have it under control but i getting back to last year i don't think she was anywhere near her best in the finals um i think carissa at 60 percent is generally good enough to beat a lot of people um, but I know deep down she would want to be performing much closer to her top. She doesn't want to be, she doesn't want to be going out there and, and just getting the job done. She wants to go and perform. She wears the number ten on her back because she wants to get tens every wave. And I think that you know that would have to be her motivation going into this year is obviously win this thing, but just put on a bit more of a commanding performance than last year. So yeah, we'll see how we go. It's interesting that I'm talking about a world champion like that because she st- still did lift the trophy last year, but. I think, you know, she she would be wanting to, to one-up herself from last year. I, I remember watching last year and actually being, like, shocked at how much it felt like she wasn't pushing it. Like, it just really felt like she was sort of tentative. Like, she just seemed like she didn't want to fall. But interestingly enough, the scores kind of tell a different story because I was just looking through and 27% of her waves last year in the WSL finals were excellent scores. So the judges really still seem to like what she was doing. And to your point, that's probably her 60% being good enough to still beat a lot of people. So um, agreed on the, I, I want to see people doing their best surfing when it matters most. Obviously we saw that from Gabriel and Felipe last year, and that's what made it so compelling. Um, the Tati and Carissa one was compelling just because of the, you know, underdog effect and you know seeing what would happen there but yeah I would love to see Carissa go out and really show her true colors and if she doesn't I think it should be someone else's turn I think if they step up and they surf at their 90 or 100 or 110 percent and you know she hovers around the 70 80 mark like I think somebody else should win it I think that's how sporting should be just because you are so naturally gifted and you've put so much time in like you got to be able to do it in the moment. That's the whole point of the WSL finals. And that's why they changed the entire system. So I think that I hope that the judges like sort of hold her accountable to surf to her potential. Well, you're either saying one of two things there. You're either saying Taddy won last year or you're saying that Chris's 60% is better than other people's 90. So what one is it? 
Uh, I'm saying Carissa's 60% is better than other people's 90. I think Carissa... So then that's not up to the judges to then, you know, give the other person a little bit of, like, fun points just because the other surfer is surfing half their best up to what their potential is. But no, that's not true, because the only reason Tati lost is because she fell in the last turn. If Tati makes that last turn, she wins. So the judges, like... But that's what you're saying. The judges do have an opportunity there to give her the win if they really think she's surfing good enough. You score what you did, not what you didn't do. Well, I guess that would have been their decision at the end if they gave it to Tati. I'm saying it would have been enough as, like, a viewer. Ultimately, it would have been in their hands, and that would have been another really interesting conversation at that point. You know what I mean? Because that is Tati really surfing at 90 95% versus Carissa's 60 And so, yeah, you're right. It's hard to have this conversation because it's all theoretical in a sense because we didn't get to have that moment of delineation from the judges. No, it's not hard to have at all because it happened. You saw a surfer surfing to their top level and falling or a surfer surfing to, you know, not their best, but it's still pretty red hot comparatively. It's just a, you know... I felt... Here's here's what I felt. I felt more compelled watching Tati surf. It just so happens that she didn't finish that wave. That's pretty much what mm. it comes down to in my mind. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a bigger conversation. Um, I think... You know, for so long we've seen Steph and Carissa go carve, carve, finish, 8-5. Um, and I think this year was like a particularly hard year for that new breed of surfer to come on. Um, you know, Molly Picklam. I know Katie Simmers didn't take her spot, but if she had to come on, I think it would have been, you know, she would have figured it out, but maybe not. Um, there's just not a lot of room for like radical surfing until you get to this back half of the year. So yeah, it's uh it's an interesting one going forward. I think that like the young women of the world are really showing that radical side. And I think the women on the tour at the moment aren't. And it's, you know, they don't really have to, they got these waves that are just open face surfing and they are doing amazing open face surfing, but it is just a different, kind of thing and I guess where I'm going with this is that I'm with you I want to see people pushing it as hard as they can and if they are falling I'd love to see some sort of reward there um you know because I think that's the only way to push the sport forward is if you have a little bit of sort of you know I can recall Dane Reynolds not riding out of airs and still getting eight fives (laughs) so you think we should go back to those days that seems a little scary (sighs) if it's to push the sport I mean we've got to mix it up at some point right yeah I and, and honestly, like the way that you're framing it right now, it's almost like, and of course it's not as simple as this, but what if you just flipped the season? You know what I mean? You put the back half of the season first. It would be interesting to see how that changed the mid-year cut and who made it through. Uh, you're not the only person who wants to have pipeline as the last event of the year. So yeah, good point, Mikey. <laughs> All right. So that is the women. Um, so I guess let's just clear it up. So I went through and I added the the sort of percentage chance that I thought of every woman winning. So I'm let's let's go one by one. I've got Steph at five percent. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I agree. Yep. All right. And just so you know, I based. I might go. I might go twelve. I might go twelve percent. She wins. Twelve percent. And we're only working. We only have a hundred percent to work with, if that makes sense. So if you give twelve, there's only eighty-eight left. Picked her number (laughs) eighty-eight. All right. So I've got Brisa at zero percent. Sorry, Brisa. Um, No, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go eight. I don't see a world in which she wins. Uh, uh. 8% all right Tati I've got 20% chance of winning Uh, I'm up to 20% total so I'll take her up to 30% for Tati for me all right so you only got 50% left wow okay you you don't even have Carissa as the 
like most well i guess she'd be the most likely but she's not like you don't think she's going to necessarily win all right so joanne How do you know i'm not gonna go 10 and 40 <laughs> joanne i got 15 i'm gonna go 25 so you got 25 on carissa i got 25 on carissa correct carried the one didn't oh my you? god i see those Little top ball. three being right. really close like I know that Carissa has a better winning number across the surface, I guess, their whole careers. But, you know, like I said with Joanne, she does know how to beat her in finals. So I think those top three are actually really close on paper, as my percentages have just uh, shown you there, Mikey. Love to see it. All right, well, I've got her at 60%. I think she's for sure the favorite. I think she has pretty much everything going for her. But part of me hopes you're right. Got to mix it up sometimes. Moving over to the men. Moving over to the men. All right, so... First up, Kanoe Igarashi obviously worked his way into the final five with a last-ditch effort that was extremely impressive. Unfortunately, we lost Griffin Colapinto as a result. But that being said, Kanoe's also had a fairly impressive year. Or I don't know if he'd call it an impressive year, but he's had a steady year, and he's made himself into the top five, which is really what they were all aiming for. So on that point, Kanoe Igarashi has lost six of his seven quarterfinals this year. That has got to sting. Yeah, definitely. But before we go any further, we just have to light a candle for Griffin Colapinto's um, finals campaign. Probably the saddest I've ever been watching surfing since Dane Reynolds beat Joel Parkinson at the Quickie Pro. Um, Just wanted him to be in the finals so bad. But I guess we'll have to wait another year. A question, Mikey. If you're Griffin, you live in San Clemente, you've grown up in San Clemente, you train with a lot of the people that have made the final five, where are you watching the event from, if you're Griffin Colapinto? I'm going on a boat trip somewhere where there's no service whatsoever. (laughs) Oh, geez. Yeah. I'd just go down and get in the thick of it, have a few Pacificos and just get behind it. Try and try and feel. Who do you think he'd be cheering for? Probably Ethan. Um, I think. Yeah. Um, I think you know. As much as it would probably hurt to see Ethan win a world title, like just because they're so competitive, I think at the same time, if if anything's going to motivate Griffin and and that, it would be seeing your friend win. So you know, um, that's where those great rivalries kind of come from. You 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 hate it as much as you love it, and I think that Griffin would it would sting, but it would also fire him right up, and he'd be the first one down there cheering, cheering Ethan up. I reckon. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's a tough one though, isn't it? Whether to just get piss right off or get right in the thick of it. Yeah. So of course it's not as simple as this, but it is really interesting to look at. Kanoa season versus Griffin's and like the stat of Kanoa lost six of his seven quarterfinals this year that also means you know he got six quarterfinals which on the men's side is actually pretty fucking good on Griffin's side he won two events but had a ton of ninths and 17ths and all these other really bad results so how do you you know how do you measure those of course they have an intricate point system that measures them so there doesn't have to be any guesswork but of course on the other hand those numbers are for all intents and purposes, arbitrary. Like, you could make the case that Griffin is more deserving to be there. You could make the case that Kanoa is more deserving to be there. Yeah, I think um, Griffin couldn't have got any more help from the um, officials than, than what he had. They recently changed the point structure, which you've made note of multiple times on the site. You know, first actually 
counts for more this year than it ever has before. Um, actually, that's not true. It's been that way for a while. Uh, they've just changed that over to the Challenger Series as well. So it's 10,000 points for second, 7,800 for... Uh, wow. 10,000 points for first, 7,800 for second, and then it trickles down and so on. And they've actually taken a percentage of points, you know, from like a... Semis is now less. It used to be 6,500. Now it's just 6,000. And it goes down all the way to last. So... For Griffin to have two wins and still not be in the final five, it, it really is a show to consistency uh, that he just wasn't consistent enough. Um, as as much as it's painful to say that, um, yeah, it just yeah, I don't I don't really know how else you can measure it. Okay, cool. Well, on that point, um, Kanoa, like you know, being consistent but not necessarily being the best surfer at any given location. He for the men, I decided to look at not just excellent heat totals, but heat totals in the 17 point range. And Kanoa had no heat totals in the 17 point range this year, so he wasn't going like above and beyond excellent. Um, number five, this is his best ever end of season ranking, and we do know that he's historically really clutch. We saw what he did in the Olympics, he pulled out a, um, a late win against Gabriel Medina to make it into the gold medal match, and then obviously, just last or two weeks ago in Tahiti, he, by the skin of his teeth, made it into this top five. Uh, his best result ever at lowers is a fifth, and where do we see him falling? Does he have any shot here? For sure. I think if they run on that Thursday, and it's he's going to be the probably first heat of the event, I'd imagine. Um, slow, high-tide morning at Trestles. He's got such a chance against it's low. Kanoa's so good at reading the ocean and being on the two best waves. And if Italo can't sort of surf him into submission um, at like, you know, a, a lully kind of dying swell trestles, Kanoa's got such a good chance against Italo, um, you know, with this forecast. Yeah, but he doesn't just have to beat Italo. He's got to go then against Ethan, who is a significantly better rail surfer than him. Then he has to go against Jack, who's a more generally explosive surfer than him. Then he has to go against Felipe, who is better at all of the above. I think he has the potential to win one heat and no more. Okay, got it. So one heat win, one, one heat wonder. Um, with that, on to Mr. Italo Ferreira. Obviously, like I said before, is the only former world champion in this uh, match here. That said, he's going to have to surf a lot of heats. That said, he's extremely energetic and surfs a ton on any given day anyway, so he doesn't seem like the energy is necessarily going to be a thing for him. However, last year, he looked totally lost out at lowers. The conditions this year look like they're going to be pretty different from last year, one way or another. It's not going to be giant, bombing, perfect, walled-up lowers. It's going to be either small and playful or sort of crossed up and weird. So I think that actually plays into his favor. It means that he can probably look left a little bit more. Um, and he's just good at like connecting weird sections together as well. So he's the only goofy foot also in this um, entire field, which obviously goofy foot won last year, but not a lot of lowers winners in the past have been goofy footers. And this is his first season since 2017 with no event wins. So do we think this can be his first event win of the season? Can he go full Joel Parko? I think having that prior experience uh, at this event is going to go a long way. Similar to, similar to you know, maybe maybe like how a Carissa would be feeling, although Carissa did win. Um, didn't show his best. So he, that is going to be his pure motivation again he's such a performer uh he definitely want to try and put on a better performance than last year 
Um, I guess I've already shown my hand there as to who I think is going to win that first matchup. But to make it interesting, I could probably say that if they run Thursday, it's Kanoa. And if they run Friday, it's it's Italo for, for the reasons that you said. He can he can, um, he can can extract big scores out of waves that are generally dog shit. So he could probably sneak a few lefts. And I mean, if he rides three or four lefts in a heat, it's generally lights out. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, so just for the record, his best result at lowers, if you don't count last year, is ninth. So he's not great at this event historically. Um, that said, he has had two heats this season with 17 points or more. So even though he hasn't been doing his best surfing this year, he hasn't had a final, he hasn't had a win. He's still been doing enough from time to time to really make the judges still say, wow. So there, there is still a bit of that Italo magic left, and he's going to need, I think, a lot of it. If he yeah, really I think one of those 17-point totals was against uh, Ethan Ewing in El Salvador. And Italo was just straight up on the best waves. And I think that's he'll need a good mixture of being on the best waves and and being the best surfer to, to go all the way. Um I think that he's usually used to being the best surfer on the worst waves, but coming up against like an Ethan who's obviously just so much stronger and just sits so much deeper in the water, um, he, he's going to need to be um, you know a little more patient than what he would usually surf a heat because I just don't think he can you can surf your way out of trouble against Ethan. Ethan's gonna Ethan's gonna look really strong against it, and it's low. All right, so that brings us to Mister Ewing. Uh, him and Jack being in this event marks the first time since 2017 that two Australians were in the top five at the end of the year, that being Wilco and Julian. Ethan has won 22 heats this year, which is more than double the amount of heat wins that he had in his first two years on tour. So he's done a complete 180, like went from obviously just probably came on a little bit young, a little bit inexperienced, and then completely matured, beefed up, and now is considered by many the best rail surfer in the world he obviously got his first win this year at j-bay and looks absolutely brilliant pretty much every time he stands up in a wave judges seem to agree with that because he has the highest percentage of excellent waves of any surfer in the top five with 12 percent meaning anytime he stands up on a wave he has basically a 12 percent chance of going excellent and he's had three heats this season above 17 points how does ethan fare in this event I know you've been critical in the past saying that not necessarily of him, but of the wave itself, that lowers isn't steep enough for him to show his true colors. He certainly uh, shut my mouth on more than one occasion in our lifetimes. Uh, And he did it the other day with a wave that ended up on Instagram. It was just like, I don't think you could have surfed the wave any better. Um, And he did not go above the lip. It was just such incredible surfing you know, barring the first turn, it was three of the biggest turns you could do. Uh, and I can easily understand why the judges have been throwing him such high scores um, all year. I think, again, I've been critical of Ethan and, and, and this format and sort of thinking that I don't think you could win the world title without doing an air. But if anyone's going to prove me wrong, it's it's definitely Ethan. He is a class above. Uh, I think him and Philippe are the only ones that really put their carve and their top turns in that critical spot. Uh, and I think Ethan's probably got 15 to 20% more power. So if he can if he can put it all together, he's got such a strong chance here. Um, the interesting thing about Ethan um, and sort of his, his career so far, although he had sweet fuck all heat wins in his first year on tour... Um, he scored so many excellent rides through his losses that 
you look at sort of world champion indicators, he he had them. And I know he never looked at himself like that. He he was hypercritical of his performances. And if he wasn't winning, it was that's all that mattered to him was winning the heats. But I think a lot of us sitting back and watching, like his very, very first wave in a world tour heat was a nine one seven at Snapper that he waited fifteen minutes for and fell at the end. And he still got a nine one seven. He would have got a fucking ten if he finished the wave. First ever time he stood up in a world tour event. He'd never won a trials. He'd never got a wild card from a sponsor. It was just fucking mind blowing. Then he went down to Bells. Same thing again. He lost a huge scoring heat to Michelle Perez in his first heat. Then he went to Margaret River and lost a, another high scoring heat to Connor Coffin. And so he was losing, losing, coming 35th in the world. But he had more excellent heats than like guys in the top five. So to see it all coming together now is like he must just be, you know, really starting to feel like it's all, you know, he, he definitely belongs. And yeah, again, we could going all day about him and I guess the one thing I'll say if there's one person who's going to win this without doing an air it's it's definitely Ethan Ewing yeah and like we said if those conditions stay true and they do happen to run on that Friday yeah you could see some big fans coming off of his board through that afternoon offshore I was tripping looking at the forecast going had to get my compass out going is that an offshore wind is that late in the afternoon is that exactly when Ethan Ewing's going to paddle out for his first heat like it's just kind of lining up for him you know he can he can throw so much water without an offshore wind. If there's an offshore wind there, his it's just gonna his surfing's just gonna look like calligraphy. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, so that brings us to number three. Sorry, number two, Jack Robinson, who like Ethan wants to be the first Australian male to win a world title since Mick Fanning in 2013. Jack, by the numbers, was actually the best performer on the back half of the season. He's had 18 wins since Margaret River compared to 16 by Felipe. He is the only surfer in the final five who has never competed at lowers, and he's got four heats this year over 17 points, which is huge. Judges have really loved his surfing. We've obviously seen that come to fruition on many occasions, sometimes to the disgruntlement of some fans and surfers. But um, yeah, okay, so when I watch Jack surf waves that are underpowered, it, to me, it feels like he's forcing it a little bit. And he does these airs that look kind of forced. They don't really look like he's like clicking necessarily. He's just like, he's so talented that he's able to huck his body over these sections and stay over his board. But like lowers just, to me, it does not do his surfing ability justice. He's reminds me a lot of like a Bruce Irons in, in a way. And I know that we've made that comparison a lot, especially with the Volcom sticker on his board. Um, but I feel like, Jack has that Hawaiian about him where if there's a little bit of juice, he's incredible. And then if there's anything but, it, it does look like he's sort of still working it out. The one thing I will say, though, is that he works shit out quicker than I think anyone as far as what the judges are liking, how he can create a point of difference for what he's capable of. It's almost like a sixth sense. You know, like you say the disgruntlement of a lot of people he doesn't have the disgruntlement of the judges. They're completely on side. And I think the reason for that is Jack has this ability to do something different in each different location to make the judges just think. And if you're asking a question of them, fucking anyone knows where it's going to land. And, it, you know, it's landing in his favor more often than not. Yes, completely agree. And also, like, think about where he came from. Like, obviously, he was 
child star growing up. Took him a while to get on tour. Then he has his first year on tour. And up until the last event of the year, he is holding on for dear life. He basically is falling off tour. Then he comes out and he wins Mexico. I feel like to me, that was like an absolute switch in his mind. I don't know if it had to do with surfboards or a way of thinking or a way of appealing to the judges through his surfing. Like, I don't know what he's worked on exactly, but you can tell he's in a different mindset this year. He's like weirdly zen and focused and his confidence is almost unlike anything I've ever seen before. So to your point, even if his sort of technical approach is not necessarily at the same level as a Felipe or even an Ethan, I would say, in waves like this, I think he will figure out every conceivable way for him to be standing on top of the podium on finals day. And I'm not saying he's going to necessarily win, but he will do everything within his power to get there, and it might just be enough. Yeah, it's going to be really, really exciting. His final wave against Ethan at J-Bay, um, where he needed a score, he started the wave with a tail slide, which is like you get out the J-Bay manual and it's, don't do anything like that at the start of the wave because you're going to fucking blow the whole rest of the wave. But, of course, Jack, just being that kind of, you know, exciting-natured surfer that he is and, and knew he was behind the eight ball, we're just watching going, what the fuck is he doing going backwards on this wave? But he spun it around and belted the lip four more times, and I think he even fell on the last turn, which, again, I don't think the score would have been enough, but had he had ridden out of it and given it a big whoop claim... Anything possible, like, and I think that uh, he's definitely found the the mojo there as far as like a point of difference. So I'm excited to see how that all uh, how that all rolls out on the on the day. I, I can't really pick that one. Like, I think Ethan on paper is a lot stronger. Should he get through that his match? But still, Jack's just got that sneakiness about him. So we'll have to wait and see. And it's actually too. It's almost a little bit surprising that Jack is not sitting at number one right now because if you remember in Tahiti, he had Kauli Vast comboed, or if not comboed, in a really really bad situation early on in their heat, and then Kauli just did what apparently he does all the time, which is just somehow find these incredible waves. And so he got past Jack in a heat where Jack looked like he had it wrapped up maybe 15 minutes into the heat. Had Jack won that heat especially with how weird the rest of the event was, like chances are he's going to the final. And if he makes the final in that, he's sitting at number one right now. So he's actually a little bit unlucky that he's not sitting at number one. But of course, that brings us to our number one, who we, and especially you, were highly critical of after watching Tahiti. Do you feel any differently now that the dust has settled? Do you still think that he doesn't necessarily deserve to be a world champion after a performance like that? Oh, call me a turncoat, but I wouldn't be mad if he won. I just think watching Tahiti, it was a bit, definitely left a sour taste in my mouth. But talk about feeling something when you watch something surf, or someone surf, excuse me. Uh, I still get pretty fired up watching Felipe Toledo ripped a lid off a, an open face wave. So, yeah, I um, still think it's a bit fucked that he didn't have a swing and go in Tahiti. Um, and... Uh, his redemption heat wasn't bad, but he probably needed to win that heat just to kind of put it to bed. Uh, and he yeah, I don't know. Had it, he did, he did get hogged. What, are you, what What's your sentiment around it? Well, you know, it is really hard to think of like who's the best surfer in the world because that's what we're trying to decide, right? Who's the best surfer in the world? And then you think that he can't really surf in the waves that people care about most. 
But to your point earlier in the year, like what he does on other types of waves is so outrageous. Like, I mean, even just look at his stats from this year. He made five finals this year in 10 events. Basically, every other event he was in the final. He had three heats over 17 points, which is tied for second most just below Jack. Um, And you also look at his former results at lowers. He's got third, third, first, and second. So everything is kind of pointing toward him being the winner this year. He obviously will have to surf the least amount of times. He'll be the least winded. One interesting stat about Felipe is that his highest scores tend to come in the latter stages of an event. So you could see this as a good thing for him going into lowers or a bad thing, because if you see his first heat as the final, then he may be thinking, yeah, we're going guns blazing. Or if he's more of a surfer that needs a couple heats to work into his best surfing, then you're thinking, hmm, I don't know if that's really the position that he wants to be in. So, yeah, I mean, he obviously, he was coming from number three last year, so he had to surf through two people first to get to Medina, and then he put up a hell of a fight against Gabby. Um, How do you think he stands? Is is, uh, You know, this sounds like a really dumb question, just considering the idea around it, but is he in a better position being in this uh, final heat already? It's not a dumb question at all. I I really think you're right, and it's quite obvious to see. He... He tapers into events beautifully. Like, I think, you know, barring the Trestles event last year, um, or, excuse me, beginning this season, I think he was 8 from 9 in finals, which is just, that record was just unbelievable. I think it, it got a bit of a got a bit of a touch-up this year with a few seconds, so it's sort of spread out a bit now. But he is that guy that just seems to win finals. And I think the fact that he can surf three events, uh, excuse me, three heats, is enough of a buffer for him to get that ball rolling. Um, I think he could lose that first one and still still be world champ. I reckon he'll get enough information out of that heat to, to start that ball rolling should he lose that first one. It's also worth noting that he's actually only got a 50% win rate out at lowers this year. If you recall from uh, Stab Highway, he actually lost a crucial heat against Balaram Stack. Uh, it was a man-on-man decision, and it was clear Balaram clearly smoked him. So he got one back on Noah Waggy later in the day. But yeah, I think that that loss to Balaram could also be weighing on him a little bit. It'd have to be haunting him. I wonder if Balaram's going to go down there and um, get on get on the shoreline to, um, I'd say, probably cheer on Robbo would be my guess. <laughs> I think he should just go with the big sign that just has an asterisk on it. Not because of the whole Tahiti thing, just because of he already lost a ball out there this year. So how can he really be the lowest champion? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the one thing about Philippe that I 100% back him being world champ. Like he's such a world champion of a bloke, uh, and uh, I think he'd be a, a, a fantastic, fantastic world champion and a great, you know, great, you know, role model for everyone. He's such a fucking legend. So, you know, to see him hanging out with the boys, yeah, it was sick. He's such a oh, fuck. He's the man, and he he fucking rips. But fuck, I just love to see him get a big left barrel. I know it would seriously though, if you think about like the historical arc of surfing, like it would be really devastating if he never won one it would be a bit like Taj I think like he's just so incredibly talented he's clearly at the peak of you know he's the best small wave surfer in the world let's call it what it is and that goes up to probably medium small waves as well then you start getting into John John territory but um yeah he's absolutely incredible and deserving world champion I god I want to be able to say that so full force that there's like a little surfer part of me that like doesn't let me fully commit to it um, you charge harder than Philippe. That. How fucked up is that? <laughs> That's not true. 
<laughs> but thank you. I appreciate oh. it. Okay, so let's just talk about a little bit of um, his sort of past encounters with these surfers on finals day. So against Kanoa, Felipe is four and two. Against Italo, he's seven and four. Against Ethan, he's one and three. And against Jack, he's 0 and two. Aussie world champ. Are you fucking kidding me? Aussie world champ. Wow. Oh my God. Yes. First time we've had two Aussies in the world title race since 2009, Joel and Mick. So as you can see, we're all pretty fired up <laughs> over here. Um, so yeah, that's, he technically has a losing record against Ethan and Jack, which is, you know, it's, you have to take into consideration that he's only surfed against Jack two times. Jack's been on tour for two years and he got the best of him twice, which may mean something, may mean nothing. Over the course of their careers, they'll probably surf against each other 20 more times and we'll see what that looks like in 10 years' time. But for now, yeah, he has a losing record against Jack and Ethan. I doubt that's a stat that he would look at or care about too much. If anything, it'll probably just fire him up like, oh, these fucking kids think they can beat me. Um, but it is interesting to know. He might not look at it, but he 100% knows it. They all know their records against each other, like you know the little black book they all carry around with the with the with the draw draw cards they have. So, yeah, that's really interesting to know. I didn't know that Ethan was so successful against him. That's incredible. Yeah. So that's there, and that's pretty much I think all we've got. Oh, I did I did some percentages for the men too if you want to just run through that swiftly. So I've got Kanoa. I've given him a, a nice 2% chance of winning the world title this year. I'll give him 8. 8. All right. I've got Italo at 8 just because of sort of what we talked about, little energizer and also point of difference on the goofy side. We never know if the conditions are going to lend themselves to just doing airs on lefts like they did last year. True. I'll go Italo 12. 12. All right, you're up to 20, I'm up to 10. Uh, Ethan, I've got it 15%. Ooh, I'm going to go Ethan at 35. Ooh, my God, he's like verging on favorite territory. Okay, I've got Jack at 25, just because I think his refusal to lose is going to make him staunch opposition. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, I'll go 25 as well. 25 so you're, You've only got 20% left for Felipe. That leaves me... I've got Felipe at 50%. I guess I'm just the fucking boring odds guys. Just take the favorite, whatever. I love that you're taking a swing. Yeah, I thought I had 30% left there. It's uh, the first coffee's wearing off. So, um, yeah, 20... Fuck it, lock it in. 20, 20% for Felipe. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Okay, well, and I, I know you can't bet on these things, but I've been betting on betting, betonline.ag. So um, I actually put some bets earlier in the year on a lot of these people. And I, I took Ethan, for instance, when he was like way back. So I put $10 on him to win the world title back in like March or something. So he's going to pay me $400 if he wins. I put $20 on Jack. He's going to pay me $320. I put my real money, though, on Felipe Toledo. I put $250 on Felipe Toledo win at three to one odds so if he wins i will be earning 750 dollars. have you got your spreadsheet lined up to start hedging dramatically <laughs> no i'm going big on finals day because really the fun part is betting on the individual heats like betting on the winner at the end of the day like yeah it's like something that you sort of put in but really the the fun comes the meat and potatoes is just betting and getting in there heat after heat so i can't lay out those bets yet because the odds aren't even up on betonline.ag at time of recording they may be by the time you're listening to this um so i'm waiting for those odds to come up on basically kanoa versus italo and steph versus brisa and of course i'm going to be curious to see which day they run on because that will impact uh the way that i i bet for sure but i'm going to be betting a significant portion of my winnings from this year i think i'm up like 
$900 or something like that. And I'm trying to either double that or pretty much lose it all. It should, that should be your strategy. And I'm talking about hedging, not to minimize your losses, but to maximize your opportunity. So you just make sure you get that spreadsheet running because you have got some amazing (laughs) bets going down there. Uh, I think that it was the boss's money to begin with. And unless you walk out of that final state with three grand in that bank account, it should be zero. Like if you want to fucking go and double your money, go and play fucking blackjack or baccarat. This is your chance to really go skits, and you've got an opportunity. So I'm riding this one hard with you. All right, betonline.ag. I, I think we're gonna be live, um, live blogging. I guess you could call it on finals day. So I'm gonna be on the site, assuming that it doesn't fall on like my freaking grandmother's birthday or something like that. Hopefully, it's just this Thursday or Friday. But I'm gonna be doing the same thing I did last year, which is basically live blogging on the site. I'm gonna be updating all my bets as soon as I make them, so that you guys can potentially follow them or bet against me and maybe make even more money that way. Whatever you want to do, but we're gonna be talking about it all day long. Of course, we're gonna follow up with a podcast with Stace. But if you want to sort of be part of the stab community during finals day, you can come and join us, and we'll chat in the comment section below. Have fun. Will you be there, Stacey? Are you, are you waking up? You doing the early? I'll get up and do like a medium early. Yeah. So you're missing the first rounds, what I'm hearing. I don't think I need to be around for those first couple. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I had a friend last year who got up and had like went to bed and then woke up at midnight and had three beers and then started drinking coffee. And I just, I don't have that in me. I'd be, I'd be a better chance at just sort of staying up and watching the finals pretty blind or getting up at like two and having a cup of tea or something. I don't, I don't think I could go to bed and then wake up again like that. Well, you've got a new baby, so hopefully uh, she keeps you up anyway and you can just ride it out with her. You know what? It's been prime time so far. Finals football season over here. Uh, and she's been an absolute dreamboat so far to watch football with on the couch. So, yeah, fingers crossed um, that, that that does happen and I can kind of kill two birds with one stone there. All right. Well, I can't wait for finals day to come. Stacey, I think we'll probably be uh, texting a lot back and forth. You'll be encouraging me to make very reckless financial decisions, and it'll be a good time. It's always better spending someone else's money, Mikey. Go hard. (laughs) Fair enough. All right. So that concludes our 2022 WSL finals day uh, conversation. I, I I don't have a better word for that. But anyway, we'll be back on Friday with Buck to discuss the week's news, which may just include lowers. Um, we'll see how that pans out. But until then, this has been The Drop. Over and out. We will have the world champion on the podcast. Hang around. Asterix, we may or may not have the world champion on the podcast. Enjoy your week.